Welcome to this podcast for the week of March 29th to April 4th. I am David J. Ridges, the author of Your Study of the Doctrine and Covenants Made Easier. This study guide has every verse of the Doctrine and Covenants in it, plus lots of background and setting material, including materials from the Joseph Smith Papers. Now, as you have noticed, there is not a specific reading block for this week, come follow me. Rather, the topic is Easter, and as noted in the, in the introduction to this week's Come Follow Me, I quote, As you prepare to commemorate the Savior's resurrection on Easter Sunday, ponder how modern revelation has deepened your faith that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God and the Redeemer of the world, close quote. By the way, a little side note here. Many years ago, uh, one of my seminary students uh, raised her hand, and uh, we were talking about Christ being the only begotten Son of God. And she said, aren't we all begotten children of God? Well, that's a good question. The answer is yes, we are all children of God. We were begotten sons and daughters of God in spirit form. We were born as spirits to our heavenly parents. So I said, yes, good question. The phrase that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, actually we need to add a couple more words. He is the only begotten Son of God in the flesh, meaning that he was the Father, literally, of Jesus Christ, who was born to Mary, the Virgin Mary. Now, Back to the topic. There are so many, many ways that modern revelation strengthens our testimonies that Jesus is the Christ and the only begotten Son of God in the flesh, that he performed and completed the atoning sacrifice necessary that provides resurrection for all of us, no matter what, and provides the opportunity for those of us who would like to uh, take advantage of the atonement and use it uh, to repent of our sins and ultimately become clean and pure and fit to be in the presence of God. That's one of the meanings of being sanctified. It means being made fit and holy and pure and clean and able to be in the presence of God forever. Now, one of the ways the modern revelation helps us understand and have a stronger and stronger testimony that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and did indeed provide the atonement for us. Let's go to section 20. Uh, this is the or origin of the church. It's on April 6, 1830. And as we look at verse 1, 
it says the rise of the Church of Christ in these last days being 1,830 years since the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the flesh, it being regularly, regularly organized and established agreeable to the laws of our country by the will and commandments of God, uh, pay attention to the date, in the fourth month and on the sixth day of the month, which is called April. In other words, the, a, the church was organized on April 6, 1830, which obviously is a very important day for the Savior himself. In the April 1975 General Conference of the Church, President Spencer W. Kimball said simply, Quote, Christ was born on the 6th of April, close quote. In other words, uh, the 6th of April was a very important date for Christ. And we have noticed that many important things happen in the spring, which is fairly close to April 6th, Christ's birthday. For instance, he was resurrected in the spring and the upcoming General Conference Sunday session for us is on Easter Sunday. And it was Easter Sunday, April 3rd, 1836, when he appeared in Kirtland, Ohio, in the temple in Kirtland, to accept the temple as after it had been dedicated the week before. Let's go to Doctrine and Covenants section 110 and read some of the verses there. We'll actually read and study section 110, verses 1 through 10. And I'm trying to get to it in my own scriptures here. And I know it's there. Let's read and pay attention to some of the things that were taught here. Joseph Smith and Oliver Calvary were in the temple. You've got a little background to that in your Come Follow Me uh, for this week. Starting with verse 1. The veil was taken from our minds, and the eyes of our understanding were opened. We saw the Lord. That is so marvelous. We saw the Lord standing upon the breastwork of the pulpit. You know what breastwork of the pulpit is? If you picture yourself in one of our chapels, and you're sitting in the congregation benches and you're looking up towards the stand, you see the pulpit there and then out to both sides of it in most of our chapels, there is a breastwork, that uh, kind of fence-like part that goes off of each side of the pulpit. We saw the Lord standing upon the breastwork of the pulpit before us, and under his feet was a paved work of pure gold in color like amber. By the way, in scriptural symbolism, numerical symbolism, gold or amber symbolizes God and the glory of God. Verse 3, his eyes were as a flame of fire. The hair of his head was white like the pure snow. His countenance shone above the brightness of the sun. 
and his voice was as the sound of the rushing of great waters, even the voice of Jehovah, saying, I am the first and the last. By the way, this is such a marvelous testimony of Christ and who he is. In verse 4, when it says, I am the first and the last, among other things, that phrase means he was around in the beginning and will be around at the end and has been helping us throughout the whole process from our spirit birth and life in the pre-mortal existence clear to judgment day and to helping us with his atonement if we desire it and if we're willing to conform to the laws of the gospel and repent as needed He'll be around at the last on Judgment Day. John chapter 5 verse 22 tells us that. So he has been around from the beginning and will be there at the end on Judgment Day. So this is a loaded phrase. I am the first and the last. I am he who liveth. In other words, he lives today. He is alive. He was resurrected. I am he who, who was slain. He's bearing testimony himself as to who he is. I am your advocate with the Father. He is the one that really wants us to succeed, along with the Father who wants us to succeed and return home. I am your advocate with the Father. In other words, he is constantly working for us and with us to help us return successfully to the presence of God and enter exaltation. Now look what he says next, which reminds us and testifies that he does have power to forgive our sins. His atonement gave him that power. Behold, your sins are forgiven you. You are clean before me. Therefore, lift up your heads and rejoice. I love that. He loves to forgive our sins, and he invites us to rejoice. Notice how many times we see rejoice here. Verse 5, near at the end, rejoice. And then verse 6, let the hearts of your brethren rejoice, and let the hearts of all my people rejoice. That's three times. Uh, are you aware that in scriptural symbolism, whenever something is said or used or a word is used three times, it's the superlative, the very best. It's a high emphasis on what is being said. So three times there we see the word rejoice, and that reminds us that we also can rejoice. Verse 6, let the hearts of your brethren rejoice and let the hearts of all my people rejoice who have with their might built this house to my name. In other words, the Kirtland Temple. Verse 7, for behold, I have accepted this house, this temple, and my name shall be here. And I will manifest myself to my people in mercy in this house. Verse 8. Yea, I will appear unto my servants and speak unto them with mine own voice. That's very significant. Quite often, or most often, it is the Holy Ghost that speaks to us. 
and even speaks for Christ. That's called divine investiture. But he himself will speak, and he will indeed, and is doing it here. If my people will keep my commandments and do not pollute this holy house, that's the responsibility we have. We don't have to be perfect to go to the temple, but we ought to be trying to be righteous. And if there are any major things that would violate temple recommend standards, then we need to work that out with the bishop or whatever and uh, not pollute the temple by going there without striving to repent and having permission from the Lord's servants, the bishop and state president on our temple recommend interviews, of course, as you know. Verse 9, Yea, the hearts of thousands and tens of thousands shall greatly rejoice in consequence of the blessings which shall be poured out and the endowment which, with which my servants endowed in this house. This is beautiful. This is not the endowment as we know it today, but they will be endowed with priesthood keys, and that will happen in the next verses of section 110. Let's finish up this scripture block with verse 10. This is a prophecy, and certainly it has been wonderfully fulfilled and continues to be so. And the fame of this house shall spread to foreign lands. And this is the beginning of the blessing which shall be poured out upon the heads of my people. Even so, amen. And if you were to glance at the next verses, you see Moses, Elias, and Elijah will appear right after Christ has appeared there. Now, one of the most powerful testimonies of Christ to me and his atoning sacrifice that we see in the Doctrine and Covenants uh, is in section 76. Let's turn to section 76. We will use verses 20 to 24, and then I'll point out one other one. Okay, I'm turning to those verses in my Doctrine and Covenants. Here we go. Section 76, verses 20 to 24. And we beheld, this is Joseph Smith, by the way, and Sidney Rigg, who are uh, seeing a marvelous vision. In fact, it's actually six visions. It's uh, uh, vision one is the glory of the sun. Vision two is the fall of Satan. That's in verses 25 to 29. And then vision three concerns the sons of perdition, verses 30 to 49. Vision four concerns the celestial kingdom, that's verses, roughly verses 50 to 70, and then also verses 92 to 96. Vision five is about the terrestrial kingdom, that's roughly verses 71 to 80, and also verse 97. 
And the sixth vision within this whole major vision is of the celestial glory, verses 81 to 89, and then also verses 98 to 106 and 109 to 112. This is a marvelous vision. Let's go to verses 20 to 24. And we beheld the glory of the Son on the right hand of the Father. So they are seeing Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father. And received of his fullness. And saw the holy angels and them who are sanctified before his throne. Worshipping God and the Lamb who worship him forever and ever. And now, after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony, last of all, which we give of him, that he lives. For we saw him, even on the right hand of God, and we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father. And we all already mentioned that that means the only begotten of the Father in the flesh. Verse 24 is powerful and answers many questions that by him, Jesus Christ, that by him and through him and of him, the worlds, by the way, notice that that's plural, the worlds are and were created and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. Now there's some important vocabulary here. The worlds, plural, were, are, and were created. Christ is the creator of all the worlds that have been created and are now created and will yet be created, which is an infinite number, for Heavenly Father. And now, the next phrase, we find that Christ's atonement works for all of the other worlds which he has created for and will create for Heavenly Father. Let's read it exactly, last half of verse 24. And the inhabitants thereof, the inhabitants of those worlds, are begotten sons and daughters unto God. Unto here means that they have the same atonement performed for them on our world. Christ only did the atonement on our planet, and that does it for all the other worlds. He doesn't have to go there and be born and raised and crucified over and over and over. The atonement that he performed on our world is valid for all of Heavenly Father's other spirits, sons and daughters. So let's read the last phrase again. Our begotten sons and daughters unto God. Unto means that exaltation is made available to them because all of us are spirit sons and daughters begotten of Heavenly Father. So begotten sons and daughters unto God. Christ's atonement works for all other worlds and the inhabitants thereof. Now, 
one of the very comforting parts of Section 76, again, bearing witness of how effective the atonement of Christ is, uh, many of my students over the years have asked how many people will get exalted, in other words, live in the highest degree of glory of the celestial kingdom. Uh, many of them, at the time they asked the question, kind of figured that relatively few uh, people will actually make it into exaltation where they become gods and live in their own family unit and ultimately create, uh, have many, many, well, innumerable spirit children and as needed create worlds to send their own spirit children to, to go through the same plan of salvation as we are going through now on our earth. And so, thinking that not too many people will actually make it, they were quite discouraged about the possibility of their making it. Well, section 76, verse 67, gives us a doctrinal answer as to how effective the atonement of Christ really is. Verse 67 of section 76 these are they who have come to an innumerable company of angels. Now, that's a lot, innumerable, but which kingdom are we talking about? Well, the answer is in the next phrase or two. To the general assembly and church of Enoch and of the firstborn. Those phrases, those terms, the General Assembly and Church of Enoch and the Firstborn, all refer to exaltation. So ultimately, how many people will actually attain exaltation? Well, the Doctrine and Covenants bears witness in 76 verse 67 that there will be an innumerable number who will make it. That's a lot. Also, you could put a cross-reference out to the, uh, the side of verse 67 or in your electronic copies of the scriptures, put a cross-reference to innumerable and put Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9, which uh, tells us the same thing. Lots of people will ultimately make it, and that means your chance and my chance is very, very good. Now, another thing I love about the Doctrine and Covenants says it bears witness of the atonement of Christ to us, and the Holy Ghost bears witness in our heart and in our mind that these things are true. Let's go to section 45, and we'll read verses 3 to 5 and discuss those for a moment. Section 45, verses 3 to 5. Imagine, if you would, that you passed away suddenly. You didn't expect to die, but now you're dead, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I'm not ready to meet God. Uh, you're thinking back, whoops, uh, I've got still got some tithing in my chest of drawers under my socks. I was going to pay that last Sunday, or I was going to pay it online, even whichever way you use. 
but uh oh uh I didn't do that. I'm in trouble now. And uh you're standing there to get your turn to appear before Christ and uh you've got quite a long line ahead of you. Now by the way, this isn't doctrinally really sound. I'm just setting it up to help you think here. So you're worried, you're, you've died suddenly, you forgot to, uh, didn't get around to paying the last tithing that you owe. Um, there's also somebody you had harsh words with in the neighborhood and you were going to go and apologize and see what you can do to work it out. At any rate, you've got, still got some time, you're still standing in line, and by the time it's your turn, you've pretty much decided there's not a chance that you can make it to the celestial kingdom, but you kind of hope you'll make it at least to terrestrial. And then a magnificent being uh, approaches you and says, come in, uh, I need to chat with you now. And he turns and faces the father who was also there. And he puts his arm around you and gives you a squeeze on your shoulder as you both face the father. And he, Jesus Christ, says to the father, section 45, starting with verse 3, listen to him who is the advocate with the Father, who is pleading your cause before him. And he says to you, listen to me. I am the advocate with the Father. I am pleading your case to the Father. I am your advocate. Saying, verse 4, Father, behold the sufferings and death of him in other words, me, Jesus Christ, the death of him who did no sin, in whom thou wast well pleased. Behold the blood of thy son. In other words, Father, consider the blood that I gave when I bled from every poor. Behold the blood of thy son which was shed, the blood of him whom thou gavest that thyself might be glorified. How is the Father glorified in this context? He is glorified when we, his children, return home to him, among other ways. Verse 5, listen carefully. He gives you a little extra squeeze on your shoulder. His arm is around your shoulders. Wherefore, Father, and I'm going to change the wording a little bit. Wherefore, Father, spare this my brother, spare this my sister, that believes on my name, that he may come, that she may come unto me and have everlasting life. Can you imagine how you would feel if you were in that situation when the Savior himself says to the Father, This my brother or this my sister has tried to live and stay on the covenant path and has used my atonement to repent and continue forward and now I am ready to provide 
all the help that is needed. It is often called, called grace. I offer my grace to this, my brother or my sister. And then he gives you another hug and takes you on into the celestial kingdom. That is the power of the atonement of Christ. That is the testimony that I at least see and feel deeply with section 45 verses 3 to 5. I love that. Well, let's uh, look at another aspect of what the Doctrine and Covenants teaches about the atonement of Christ. Let's go to section 29, verse 26. Again, I'm turning to it in my scriptures, my hard copy of the scriptures. How many people will actually be resurrected? Let's look at section 29, verse 26. This is very comforting. Verse 26, section 29. How many people will be resurrected? Verse 26, but behold, verily I say unto you, before the earth shall pass away, in other words, before the final scenes of this earth, Michael, mine archangel, by the way, that's Adam, before the earth shall pass away, Michael, mine archangel, shall sound his trumpet, and then shall all the dead awake. So how many get resurrected? All people who have ever been born. All the dead awake, for their graves shall be opened, and they shall come forth, yea, even all. That's doctrine. That's clear fact. Everyone will be resurrected, no matter what. Going back several years, uh, I had a seminary student that lingered after class and uh, it was the last period of the day so she said can I ask you something in your office and said sure and what she asked was this she said what she said brother Ridges uh, I trust that you know a lot about the gospel and all the doctrines what sin could I commit so that I will be extincted that was the word she used it was kind of local dialect what can i do what sin can i can i commit to be absolutely extincted and the reason i'm asking you this brother ridges is because i know that when we actually die our body stays here but we're still alive our spirit and uh, keeps going and so i want some sin that i can commit that will cause my spirit also to become extinct and my intelligence to become extinct. Well, folks, what's the answer? We just read it. All the dead will awake, even all. Everybody gets resurrected. The answer is there's not a sin you can commit that will take care of what you'd really like to do. I found out a little later in the discussion, by the way, I did get her to the bishop. Uh, 
And I found out later that she had been driving the getaway car for some guys that had been crawling in through some large heat vents and air conditioning ducts into a local store and stealing uh, electronic equipment. Well, what's the ultimate answer to this? She will be resurrected. And, by the way, she did go to the bishop. Uh, he was kind and helped her work things out. And then I was transferred. But many years later, I was down in California doing a Know Your, Relig know Your Religion, a series of lectures for Know Your Religion. And after the end of my lecture in one of the chapels there, people came up as usual and asked questions, and I glanced to the back of the chapel, and there she was. What an exciting thing to see her, this young lady who had asked if she can become extincted. Obviously, the atonement had worked in her life, and she had been married in a temple, we chatted later that evening. She had a family, and the atonement of Christ had made everything good in her life. In other words, the atonement really works. That's the testimony time and time and time again in the doctrine and covenants, uh, especially as we're studying it this year for Come Follow Me. By the way, have you noticed that President Nelson often emphasizes the joy of repenting and the Doctrine and Covenants teaches the joy that not only it brings to us to repent, and we ought to have that, according to President Nelson, every day. We ought to be constantly repenting, daily repenting, and we ought to be looking at it with joy because of the wonderful opportunity the Doctrine and Covenants teaches us the joy that it brings to Christ when we repent. I think this is a major thing to keep in mind. Let's go to section 18, verse 13 of the Doctrine and Covenants. That's going to be section 18, verse 13. And read what the Doctrine and Covenants says about bringing joy to the Savior. Section 18, verse 13, how great is his joy, the Savior's joy, in the soul that repenteth. So it, every time we repent, we're bringing great joy to the Savior. Now, our time is getting limited. Let me go through a couple more things. Uh, when I was a little boy and older, uh, but still very much in my youth, I knew about the atonement of Christ and what he did. I suffered in the garden and uh, gave his life on the cross. I always kind of thought that since he was a god, that the atonement was probably relatively easy for him because he was a god and could turn down the pain and suffering involved as he did the atonement. Well, imagine my surprise and actual kind of relief to know the truth. And the truth about the suffering that he went through 
It is given to us by way of testimony in Doctrine and Covenants 19, verses 16 to 19. Doctrine and Covenants 19, verses 16 to 19. Let's go ahead and read these verses and chat a little bit about them. Section 19, verse 16. For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. That's a if-then statement. Verse 17, but if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. And verse 18 is the focus now. Which suffering caused myself, even the even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain, and to bleed at every pore, and to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Nevertheless, verse 19, nevertheless, glory be to the Father, and I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. In other words, I finished the atonement, and that certainly changed my mind. He went uh, to unimaginable suffering. My human mind can't even begin to comprehend, but I can take it on complete faith and realize that it was unbelievably difficult for him to accomplish the atonement, but he did it. He loves us, he loves the Father, and he did it. And so, in summary, now, the atonement allows us to rejoice. It invites us to rejoice. In other words, correctly understood, the atonement makes optimists out of us. Wonderfully valid optimists out of each one of us, if we allow it. It provides perfect hope that we can make it. Let's finish up now with Doctrine and Covenants section 109. By the way, this is the dedicatory prayer for the Kirtland Temple, given a week before Christ appeared in the Kirtland Temple. Section 109, verse 21. 109, verse 21. This is, by the way, one of the blessings of temple attendance. And it also reminds us and gives us perfect hope, really, if we understand it correctly, that we can make it to exaltation, ultimately, by staying on the covenant path and by repenting as needed, and by living the gospel as best we can. Verse 21, section 109. And when thy people transgress any of them, they may speedily repent and return unto thee. I love that. Repent speedily and return unto thee, and find favor in thy sight and be restored to the blessings which thou hast ordained to be poured out upon 
those who shall reverence thee in thy house. I love that. We can speedily repent. So somebody asks you, how long does it really take to repent? Well, surely it's dependent on the situation and maybe things that have to be taken care of, including some apologize, maybe even a visit with the bishop or state president. But the answer is, they may speedily repent and return unto thee and find favor in thy sight. And that is my testimony that the Doctrine and Covenants, especially this year, our course of study, that we find testimony after testimony in the Doctrine and Covenants as well as other scriptures that the atonement works. It is very individual for each one of us and allows us to rejoice and invites us to rejoice and be happy and be optimists and provides a perfect hope that we can ultimately, through the grace of Christ, enter into exaltation and live in the family unit with our spouse and enter into all the blessings of exaltation. And this I leave in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.